Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of Red Envelope. I am your host, Bradley Limer, and this podcast is where my partners and I focus on what is happening in the world of financial services, fintech, and financial inclusion. We also talk about what is happening in China, the Far East, going all the way into India and way beyond. Today, we'll focus on what's happening in Africa and payments and what the broader impact and opportunity of financial services has in leveling the playing field for people throughout the economies of the globe. Our special guest today is Costa Parrott, Deputy Director for Financial Services for the Poor at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So welcome, Costa, to the program. It is so wonderful to have you here today with us. Hi, Bradley. I'm doing excellent, and I'm really glad to uh, join the podcast. We are so glad to have you on the podcast. Uh, so before we talk about what you are focused on at the Gates Foundation, let's talk about you know your journey in financial services a little bit, that path that got you there. Um, you have a really interesting educational background in computer science, and you worked in a variety of developer and project management roles, and you eventually found your way to SWIFT. So how did you end up going into SWIFT and founding Inotribe in the first place? Yeah, that, I joined SWIFT back uh, in, the 19, uh, in 1990 um, really as a, a researcher in computer science. There was a, a research department actually back then. And um, uh, actually at SWIFT throughout my career, I always stayed on this research and development slash innovation side, um, mostly on the technology uh, so over time, uh, I was involved in in several big projects that had to do with uh, essentially re redesigning pieces of the SWIFT network uh, that needed, you know, redesigned because of uh, technology obsolescence and and so on. And um, uh, in the late Late 90s, uh, we started really a big overhaul of the uh, SWIFT network uh, with new technologies back then, which were IP, XML, and especially the, uh, you know, PKI security. And um, so I led that effort at some point in time uh, to, as a chief architect, to redesign the network and then also to migrate um, the users, the customers from uh, the old network to the new network, which was not, uh, in fact, that was a big, as big as endeavor as deploying the new network, uh, because uh, obviously you have to make sure that uh, while all of this is happening, Swift remains uh, up and running. Um, yeah, so I, I was always on the, this front end of technology. And then uh, what happened around 2006, seven, um, uh, a new CEO came around. There was a change of CEO. Lazaro Campos became the CEO. And he gave me a chance to try to really change the culture and, uh, and uh, way of doing uh, at Swift. Uh, to be more innovative, to try to make the company more reactive to new technology and new business opportunities. Uh, at that time, Swift was 
the, the motto of Swift was failure is not an option, which was a great motto because obviously, you know, if a thing like a network like Swift goes down, even for a couple seconds, it's, it's a huge problem for the world economy. Um, but it, it, so over time, it kind of became obvious that people were, took this as uh, not taking risk and not doing any new things, new innovations. And so the idea was to change that. And, and that's how I ended up creating this um, innovation unit at Swift that we ended after a couple of years we called InnoTribe. And that was a whole, <laughs> a whole uh, new ride in itself. And Bradley, you've been involved in this as well, I remember. Yeah, so let's get into Intertribe. I think that's where I first started meeting and talking to people like yourself and Peter and Nectario and Mateo uh, when you first started Intertribe. So, so let's talk about the story behind the name. You know, uh, let's talk about what Innotribe meant, uh, because you know most innovation teams are simply called the innovation team. But Innotribe was different from the beginning. It was it was really like a tribe. Yeah. So, it's a it's an interesting thing, uh, and uh, it 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 showed. Um, that um, how the team really worked together. So we had, as you say, Nectarios, Mariela, and Matteo, Peter. Um, and um, what we wanted to do is to create something that was first and foremost based on the concept of open innovation. Um, so the idea was that uh, net new ideas for product, services, business opportunities could come from anywhere. Uh, not only from, you know, the traditional places designated for so, like product management outfits or research units. Um, our idea was that um, many people around the company and outside of company were having excellent ideas and we wanted to empower this tribe in a way that we called this tribe of intrapreneurs and entrepreneurs around Swift to engage in innovation. And that's how the name came about, InnoTribe. Uh, we wanted to convey this notion that, um, uh, that uh, anyone uh, in this big tribe could actually step up and say, hey, I have an idea and, and the tribe would make sure that uh, they would give this idea a fair chance of try and experimentation and eventually uh, uh, success. Well, you know, you definitely created one of the best reasons to attend Swift Cybo's conference. Um, it was like a conference within a conference. It really reflected a different way of thinking, and, you know, it impacted the way people thought of structuring a conference over the past decade. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about some of the ways that you brought this idea of promoting entrepreneurship? If I recall, you know, with, within conference itself, you were really trying to, to find different ways to get people to think differently. Uh, there were drumming circles, if I remember. There were fellows on the floor in different physical formats throughout um, in a tribe space within Cybos. 
and you had different voices from speakers outside of the industry to really get people to think beyond just financial services. And it was, it was very informal, but I think it really led to people thinking a, a, a lot differently than what they did sort of at other conferences and, and throughout, you know, sort of the regular part of Cybos. So can you, can you talk about what you're doing through Intertribe uh, or what you are trying to do at Intertribe um, at the Cybos shows? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, what we try to do is make, um, is make uh, innovation focused uh, conference within the conference that uh, would have a different way. So back then, if you, if you walked into uh, Cybos, this would be, you know, a pretty very formal business affair uh, where a lot of people, did, you know, did networking and business. There was a, a conference focused on uh, industry issues. Um, but the one thing that was not talked about at all was, um, you know, what uh, what the industry, what was new in the industry. And um, the idea, therefore, was to try to connect the people at Cybos to a different audience or so different people, uh, notably uh, the technology startups, which... Um, back then, you know, we were talking 2007, they were, the, the, even the word fintech didn't exist back then. There was no accelerators or incubators uh, of fintech startups. There was nothing like that. And so we, we wanted to create this space where uh, the executives on the industry would actually feel safe to talk to these new uh, people that they didn't know and where, uh, like, for example, tech startups would have an audience of uh, industry executives that would, uh, you know, actually listen to them. Uh, and back then, I remember, uh, you know, if you were a tech startup back then, like talking to a CEO of a bank was totally impossible or even any executive. And so, you know, Tribe turned to be this place where not only all of this was actually possible, but where there was almost like this protected space within Cybos where it was safe to talk about, uh, you know, um, new technologies, even, you know, the precursor of cryptocurrencies. We discussed the notion of um, uh, identity uh, already, electronic identity. So there was a space uh, that uh, that really was uh, fun to be in, interesting to be, meeting people who you wouldn't meet otherwise. And it turned to, out to be a huge success. It turned out to be something that people really clearly wanted, but there was no outlet for it. And, and so InnoTribe over the years turned to be a quite a huge success. Um, and then uh, over over the years, we actually on a, organized, um, uh, you know, startup challenges and uh, technology, um, you know, shows uh, that that you know increased the interest over of of people attending. And over time, we really, as you say, had a conference within a conference that was super well attended. Um, and essentially, what it was. 
uh, it was another kind of concept of Inno Tribe, which was the concept of a sandbox where you actually create a space where people can engage in talking, trying new new technologies, new products, new ideas in a way that is safe for for people's reputation, for the brand of the companies engaging in innovation, for, you know, financial safety. Um, and this came to be perhaps one of the founding uh, key principles of InnoTribe, this sandbox where that, and InnoTribe at Cybers was a sandbox, but there were other sandboxes that we created where, where people uh, were were feeling were felt safe to go try new things if these things failed no big deal no harm to anyone we could move on if these things showed some sign of success then additional resources uh, and uh, uh, actions could be done to take this out of a sandbox and create a new product and service and over time uh, we had these sandboxes at Cybos, at Swift, in the industry uh, that generated also a lot of new interest and uh, uh, products and services. And, and so um, along those lines, then, you, you actually wrote a book in 2012 called the castle and the sandbox, and it covered about you know it, it covered a lot of the things that you had as experiences at InnoTribe and trying to build um, a a new sort of evolutionary revolutionary sort of lab within a large organization like Swift. And I remember you know reading this book, and it really spoke to me. Um, it was like. It was like the who moved my cheese of innovation. Um, it looked at incumbents and how you could really craft new ideas. A lot of the things that you covered in the book just weren't common back in, in 2007, let alone you know, 2010 or 2012. Um, you started InnoTribe 12 years ago. Firms didn't have innovation teams. They didn't have labs, it, at least not in financial services. Nothing like this. And so what would have been some of the, the more significant changes in the industry in the past decade that, that really you think have inspired innovation? Uh, because I see a lot of it inspired by, by what you did at InnoTrack. It, it's actually amazing to think about this because remember, as I said, when we started, um, there was none of these things that today we take as granted, you know, like the venture capital funds for fintech, even the word fintech, the notion of um, uh, sandboxes. Uh, uh, so none of that existed. And um, it was really a tremendous ride to see um, InnoTribe being one of these initiatives at the forefront that I think created all of this. Um, and, uh, you know, today we have uh, sandboxes in such places like the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. It's, it's amazing that uh, that such progress was made in in traditionally risk-averse companies to to engage in this, especially 
you know, banking, but also regular banking regulators, um, the huge fintech uh, investment uh, around startups uh, that that uh, got going, the whole notion of um, incubators that uh, some of us went, like Matteo and Nectarius, after. Um, you know, after we, after moving on from, you know, Tribe and Swift, uh, they helped create. So all of that has pretty much changed and created this fintech world that today is so familiar to all of us. But back then it didn't exist. So it was a tremendous ride. And uh, the book actually describes, uh, as we were going along, as, as this was moving as the industry was changing, we saw a lot of banks create this, you know, position of um, head of innovation or chief innovation officer, um, uh, uh, some huge conglomerates. Yourself, you were in that position, Bradley, I remember at BBVA. Um, and and so the, the book was written as a kind of like a cookbook of for people in my position uh, at Swift to kind of um, suggest to them some ways that uh, they could create the same movement and, uh, um, uh, you know, this notion of open innovation, sponsoring intrapreneurship, sandboxes, creating safe places and events for people to meet. Um, all of that uh, I try to capture in a book in a kind of a funny way as well. So yeah, that's that's a little bit about the book. But uh, I think today um, innovation and mind you, if your question was, are we there yet in a way for for let's say the banking industry to be completely focused on innovation? Obviously not. Uh, we are not there yet. But I think there was a huge progress made, uh, and this notion today of collaboration between banking and the fintech industry. Uh, is is now an established and and I think very positive. So now you're at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and part of your mission is around financial inclusion. Can you tell us um, a little bit more about your team's objectives then? Yeah. Uh, so the the objectives. The, the key objective is pretty simple. It is to connect the 1.7 billion people on the planet that uh, that are unbanked, to connect these people to an adequate financial service. Uh, 1.7 billion people have ac no access whatsoever to any kind of uh, financial or banking service. And um, we know that uh, from from uh, uh, research, pre previous research, we know that um, uh, connecting them to an adequate financial service is actually helping the poor manage better their lives and uh, possibly also get out of poverty. So uh, the focus on financial inclusion goes along quite well at the Gates Foundation with many other uh, uh, pro-poor initiatives on the health uh, side, agriculture um, and, uh, you know, water sanitation. So financial inclusion is 
one of, among the others poverty alleviation measures that I'm focusing on uh, for about now six years. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. What had you learned about payments that evolved within China and Kenya and other geographies that led the Gates Foundation to develop MojoLoop? Can, can you tell us a little bit more and provide some, some context about your efforts and sort of the story behind MojoLoop itself? So uh, the first thing I think that uh, I learned, um, and in a way I learned again, because you may actually not know this, Bradley, but I actually spent my teenage years in, in Africa. Um, in Burundi and uh, before going to Belgium for uh, college. Um, so I knew this, but I learned it again when I joined the foundation, is that it's expensive to be poor. Uh, when you look at the poor people in Africa and also South Asia, um, they, uh, they live complicated lives and uh, their lives are made more complicated by using cash as a payment mechanism. Cash is uh, not safe. Um, cash is cumbersome. So if a household has, uh, let's say, a child, a rural household in Kenya has a child living in Nairobi working, sending money back home is a complicated process if you deal with cash. You have to transport the cash, uh, you have to perhaps pay someone uh, to, uh, to transport the cash back. Uh, you run the risk of that money disappearing. Um, so it's cumbersome. It's also very cumbersome if you deal only with cash to deal, transact for basic services. So for example, if you want to pay uh, school tuition for a child, you actually have to travel to the school uh, to pay. Uh, you have to walk to um, uh, utility to pay for you know, electricity. Um, and so cash is very cumbersome, difficult to manage, uh, very insecure. And we have seen, uh, as you say, uh, one of the key innovations that was born in Africa that actually is 10 years old now is so-called mobile money. It was pioneered by M-Pesa in Kenya. Uh, and what it, may, it makes possible is to send money uh, from phone to phone as you send a text message. So, uh, and mind you, you don't need a smartphone to do that. Uh, simple foldable phone is uh, adequate. And um, observing this innovation has shown us that a, a couple of key learnings. One, it is hugely helpful for households and people to have access to this. Um, and, you know, the, the success of M-Pesa in Kenya talks uh, plainly about 
uh, that success, and we have commissioned, uh, you know, solid and robust research showing how uh, households can actually get out of poverty if if they have uh, tools to manage uh, and process uh, cash in an electronic digital way. Uh, what also it has shown is that it can be profitable uh, for uh, providers to serve the poor in such a way. One of the key barriers, uh, in fact, the reason why there is 1.7 billion people that are unbanked today is because the traditional banking model uh, is not uh, designed uh, suitable to serve uh, the poor. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, uh, the way people transact in Africa, um, uh, you know, when I was young there in, in, in Africa, my teenage years, uh, people bought cigarettes by the piece, not by the pack, because that's the money you have right there. Uh, and so uh, providing adequate financial services to people, to people and households who live such complex lives is not something that traditional banks provide. Thus, we have seen other providers more coming from um, the, uh, the mobile phone uh, field, like M-Pesa do this, uh, and uh, in a way that is profitable to them. So what they capitalize is on the fact that there is a huge amount of small transactions, so very small fees make up um, the revenue for this company uh, and the fees can come from various places on the transaction or on cash in or cash out uh, uh, of uh, of money of cash to digital so today if we look at sub-saharan africa uh, there is more than 200 commercial mobile money operations so that that just proves the fact that uh, one, it is possible to serve the poor in a different way and business model. Second, it is profitable to do so. So our work today uh, at the Gates Foundation is not to help foster more mobile money operations because obviously this is happening uh, without uh, anyone's help. Our goal today is to accelerate the movement to connect all the countries across Africa and uh, in fact the African continent with a system that is suitable uh, to serve the poor. So the, the first thing that we did on, in this endeavor is to think about principles of how a system, a financial system should, how should it be structured to adequately serve the poor. Uh, these these principles are regrouped under a name uh, called Level One Project. You can read about them on level1project.org. And basically, what this what these principles describe is a real-time retail payment system accessible from simple mobile phones. These principles talk about instantaneous payments, uh, uh, so that. Obviously, the digital version has to mimic cash. When you hand cash to someone, the transaction is done. So the same thing needs to happen on a digital. When you 
uh, when, when you transact, the transaction is, is real-time, your wallet is debited, the receiver wallet is credited immediately and irrevocably. So that's kind of one set of principles. Uh, the other set of principles says that uh, in order to include uh, the 1.7 billion people overall, the 400 million African adults, you have to have some form of tiered KYC mechanism um, that accounts for the fact that most of this uh, population does not have all of the information required to open a formal bank account. Uh, that's a huge barrier as well. So uh, we have seen how, for example, India solved this problem with the biometric IDs. Uh, and so we, we work also on solving this um, uh, KYC identity problem. Uh, then also these principles describe how, um, how a payment platform should be operated. Uh, and we suggest that the best way to do that is, is like a utility. And we know in Europe, the payment utilities, they operate on a not for loss, as I say, basis. So they operate um, uh, as a pure utility. So their goal is not to make money, but their goal is to sustain the system, the platform, uh, and sustain evolution of the platform over time. So all of this, uh, we are working, these principles are at the same time very general and at the same time quite specific. So we work uh, in countries in Africa and Asia with key stakeholders on the ground to help them implement, deploy platforms um, in the spirit of these principles. Uh, we have projects in, uh, we have a project in Pakistan going on right now to deploy, uh, to help them deploy a, a national payment, uh, real-time infrastructure that interconnects all of the banks and all of the mobile money or digital uh, money operations. We have a similar project going on in Tanzania, for example, uh, and that is uh, uh, in fact, a key evolution if you compare Tanzania to Kenya. Uh, Kenya, there is a, a M-Pesa, um, a single um, provider that has the most of the market. Um, and it's, it's great, but it's a silo. So if, if you're if on M-Pesa, the sender and receiver have to be on the same uh, platform, M-Pesa. In Tanzania, they are taking the next innovation, which is interoperability. Uh, so connecting all of the systems, uh, the mobile money systems, but also connecting them to banks, connecting to the government, connecting the utilities in a real-time country, national payment platform. Um, we have a similar project where we are helping um, in Western Africa, the uh, Western African Economic Monetary Union, eight countries uh, that share the same currency, do the same. So that's, that's kind of a main trust of our work. As these deployments go on, one problem we have, one barrier we have noticed is that 
um, there is no kind of off-the-shelf commercial solution for a platform uh, that is aligned with the level one project principles. Um, so projects have to like take a lot of technologies and assemble them together to do that, which is sometimes a problem because obviously in Africa, there is an issue of skills, how, you know, how uh, real-time payment platforms require relatively skilled uh, uh, operations. So uh, to overcome that, the foundation has commissioned the development of a software that was made open source that's called MojaLoop, as you were saying, uh, Bradley. So MojaLoop is an open source software that provides an easy way for uh, countries and communities that want to uh, do interoperable real-time payment platforms to take a solution that already exists rather than trying to reinventing all over again. And uh, some of the projects that I mentioned uh, already use MojaLoop as a technology. Some of them don't. Uh, it really, uh, I mean, uh, MojaLoop is just one tool among others that is available uh, for that. The, the fact that we have made MojaLoop open source also reflects one of our key operating principles is that everything we help with, everything we do is uh, open, is, uh, should be open for everyone to reuse uh, because if we want to achieve 1.7 uh, connecting 1.7 billion people, uh, it it needs it's still a huge effort, and we need to uh, make it easy to do so. I like that that you position MojiLoop as part of an open banking platform, part of the infrastructure to open banking up and to broaden access to financial services for the underbanked and the unbanked. You recently wrote an article where you said, the most innovative thing we can do with the power that we have through digital and mobile technology is to expand the reach of financial services to the 1.7 billion people who must forge ahead without them today. So, so in a way, extending access to banking services is, is really a success story moving people from payments to credit to savings and long-term wealth creation. We've seen this in Kenya with M-Pesa, China with Alipay and WeChat, Indonesia with Bcash, Paytm in India. What else do you see happening to improve the financial lives um, and, and therefore, you know, everyday life for more people in the world? Yeah, the, uh, the way we, we see this in, indeed is that um, payments and identity, as I mentioned, are kind of like the basic infrastructure components that are required um, to, first of all, uh, connect people and be able to transact with each other in this real-time concept. But the question then becomes, for what, uh, to your point? And I think... I think um, there are two kind of ways of thinking about it. The first is that obviously the payments are like the connective tissue for other services like micro 
lending um, uh, comes to mind, obviously, as a first example uh, of kind of like a traditional service that can ride on these new payment rails. But I think the interesting point really, uh, in my, my passion lies perhaps again with in innovation. And I think what this makes possible is something actually much more powerful, uh, which is innovation by uh, people who know how, what the poor need for the poor. And let me give you one example that uh, of this new, totally innovative service that is really focused on the needs of the poor households is the way how um, it's called solar pay as you go. Uh, it's a service that's available in, um, in uh, East Africa, in several countries in East Africa. And these, um, these startup sells uh, solar batteries to households. Uh, solar batteries are precious for them because they provide electricity, clean electricity at night for children to, to be able to study, uh, for people to be able to recharge their phones. So it's a precious and very much thought, sought after item. The problem is that um, buying a uh, solar battery for a poor household is comparable to, you know, like buying a car for a family in, in the US. So it's a huge expense. And so what this company has done is kind of like a pay-as-you-go agreement. So they deliver the battery to the household and the household can use the battery and pay back using very small amounts every day. Uh, and this is how, remember my example of micro needs and micro payments earlier on. Well, for a poor household, they can manage uh, to pay small amounts every day. In fact, if they don't pay for a while, eventually the battery will shut down. Uh, but as soon as they start paying again, the battery will start operating again. And so this, uh, this shows how this product has been so fine-tuned to the needs of, of this uh, segment of the population um, that and that's the kind of innovation I think we will see much more. So from that perspective, and by the way, once the, the household pays back fully the battery, they own it. So in the process of this, they have uh, obtained an item, an asset for the household. They have built up their credit history uh, by doing the payments. And you can see how this has benefited them and how can it can benefit them uh, later. And so th that's what I find exciting is this uh, notion of the infrastructure that makes a whole new set of uh, new products and services totally innovative that will be invented in Africa and that will serve the Africans. And that's what I find so exciting, in fact, in, in this work is to see these innovations early on and hopefully we can see how uh, many others will come. Do you think that, that we in the industry are investing enough 
in creating an equal playing field for financial services? I mean, do you, do you think we're going to see more investments in this space? I think that um, we can see signs now that uh, that this is being understood by the stakeholders in Africa, uh, governments. Uh, you can see how governments are understanding um, that an economy that includes everyone benefits everyone. So you can see how governments are looking at financial inclusion as a way to actually increase the economic outputs of the countries and economic, and you know, even the GDP of the country. You can see how um, the venture capitalists are starting to show up in Africa and how they understand that this new wave of innovation is coming and are starting to create um, incubators in Lagos, Abuja, Nairobi, Joburg, uh, Accra, and, and others. You can see that um, the fintech ecosystems uh, are starting to uh, gear up. And then finally, you can see how the central banks and banking communities in Africa are driving towards deploying infrastructure that is nationwide, but soon uh, intra-nations, regional, and even pan-African uh, uh, to uh, levels to do that. I will give you another example that we observe as well from the private sector side. Um, uh, Orange and MTN, the two big providers of mobile money in Africa, have teamed up together a joint venture called Mowali, um, that, whose goal is to run a payment platform to interconnect all of their operations uh, in Africa. And uh, they are actually making Mowali open for other operators to join in. And so you can see how the model of um, you know, countrywide payment platforms that we have seen, as you say, in China uh, are starting in Africa, but in a kind of a more African adapted way. Uh, uh, you know, China is one country, Africa is 54 countries. So you have to account for the fact that you, this interoperability also uh, between systems on an African level is going to be very important. So I'm trying to draw this big picture for you, Bradley, on how these platforms, infrastructures of payments and identity are being built, are being noticed by the private sector as key drivers for um, future innovations with some concrete examples already. And so we are so happy to see this acceleration that we observe this acceleration um, uh, happening at the moment. And uh, I firmly believe that we can see how 400 million unbanked Africans will get uh, access to innovative products and services in our lifetimes. I love this idea that we will one day be able to level up every single person 
up the economic ladders of society, regardless of where they started and where they live. So, so when people in the banking industry hear about what's happening with the Gates Foundation, with your team in Mojaloop and Africa and beyond, if they want to get involved or if institutions or individuals want to learn more, where can, where can they go? Where would you send them? So uh, I think there is a lot of information um, available on how to engage. Um, I would say from the perspective of what I told you in this episode, um, one information source I can suggest is the Gates Foundation, uh, we, our website, the Level 1 Project website. Um, Mojaloop has a website called mojaloop.io for uh, the more techno technologically uh, minded uh, listeners. So uh, that's kind of one way uh, and we make sure to explain examples of projects I mentioned, Pakistan, Tanzania, Western Africa, Mowali. So examples of projects that are going on that can either provide inspiration for uh, banks in Africa to partner uh, and to align with some of these initiatives, or perhaps for um, some banks to think about digital open bank offsprings in Africa. We have seen a few examples of that, and I do hope um, some banks will either newcomers or some banks will spawn off these digital banks like we have seen some in uh, born in, in Europe and, and the US recently um, that would you know focus as well on the poor, uh, the poorer segments of the population. Um, so that's another way to, to get engaged. Um, finally, I think um, uh, following, you know, our Twitter feeds uh, and uh, LinkedIn posts is another good way to understand what's happening and um, uh, get involved. I try to also participate to some conferences in Africa to uh, make sure that I connect with the stakeholders uh, for new projects as well. We are looking forward for new countries, other countries and other regions to uh, embark on infrastructure building. So I'm always on the lookout for such uh, projects and people to reach out. Well, Costa, I would say that you have been a big inspiration for me, at least for the last 12 or 13 years with what you and your teams have done at both Swift and Intertribe and now your efforts at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I would implore our listeners to go seek more information on Mojalu and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and look for the book Castle in the Sandbox uh, on Amazon and other stores to learn more about the process of innovation within the enterprise. So Costa, thank you so much for sharing your views today. Keep innovating, my friend, and keep making banking better for the world. Thank you so much, Bradley. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being partner in innovation for these, you know, 15 years. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners as well. Thank you so much. Be well.